Episode 13, Marco Isover, founding CEO of America EB5 Visa. You're listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. Join host Matt Trash as he interviews the EB5 industry's courageous men and women, leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB5. And now, financial engineer, industry expert, and EB5 superhero, Matt Trush. Welcome to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB5. EB-5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the U.S. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessarily long processing times, program sunsets, and even twilight. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of US immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time more than ever for the good guys and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines of making positive change, the courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real life successes and failures. Billions of dollars in families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming Marco Isover, founding CEO of America EB-5 Visa. EB-5 superhero, Marco Isover. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Max, for having me in the show. Marco, EB-5 superheroes are industry leaders like yourself, protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Marco, let me brag about you a bit. A 30-year Wall Street veteran, Marco is the founding CEO of America EB-5 Visa, connecting international investors with EB-5 issuers. Marco is also the co-founder of a global immigration company, advising clients in second-country citizenship, including Turkey, Grenada, Spain, and Canada. Marco was managing director at BNY Mellon, leading their derivative sales to global financial institutions. Marco earned his MBA in finance from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and bachelor's in Istanbul, Turkey. Marco's superpowers include that he speaks fluent Turkish and Ladino Spanish, huge assets for EB-5 and global immigration. And on a more personal note, Marco is the founding president of the Olive Learning Center and a board member of Manhattan Sephardic Congregation, where we first met. Marco, my friend, I'm so excited to have you here on the show today. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, I know you well, but I'm sure listeners are, are keen to hear about your international background, some personal stories. There is a little article in EB-5 Investors Magazine about how EB-5 is a, is a great thing for foreign students. I actually give a little background of who I am because I'm obviously an immigrant and it applies to me. So, uh, you know, anybody who's interested uh, can certainly go to EB-5Investors.com, put my name and it's very simple to find the article. I came to this country in early 80. I went to uh, Penn, Wharton, and then I went to Wall Street. I changed companies, I guess, in my career until I went on my own three times. I started in Prudential Securities, their uh, mortgage-backed securities department, 
Then I did financial strategies. Then I was one of the co-founding members of derivative company Sakura Global Capital. I did that for seven years. Then I was the global head in Bank of New York's derivative sales for 18 years. So I done, you know, financial structuring and all sorts of things throughout my career. And then uh, in 2014, I left the bank and I started uh, the real estate company, the BH Capital uh, Management Company. And, you know, how I found myself in the EB5 world, I'm sure everybody has their own stories. It's really, I don't believe in coincidences. Buying almost, almost, almost one, one might say happenstance. Of course not. But, you know, there's a lot rabbi, actually, not rabbi that we both know, although this rabbi, you probably know him as well, who has been in my case forever, you know, when I was in the derivative desk in Bank in New York, and uh, he kept on telling me, why don't you go on your own? Why don't you go on your own? You should come out, you should go to EB-5. Back, back then, you know, EB-5 was not really as known as it, as it is now. And it just stuck in my mind. And when I was in the real estate business, and I was raising equity for, you know, large developers, one of them, in the middle of the conversation, he much said to me, you know, raising equity, just kind of like anybody can do. We are in EB-5 in a big way. This is a big regional center. And he said, why don't you raise us EB-5 in Turkey? You're Turkish. Why do you do that? I mean, I knew that EB-5 is five letters. I mean, three letters, EB and five back then. Um, I'm not sure I knew what a regional center is, although this company had its own captive regional center. But I said, okay, you know, like, what the heck? <laughs> I'll do this. So I went into, you know, a war room like situation for a good six months. I mean, uh, company really believed in me. They gave uh, uh, us uh, pretty much exclusive. At the, at the time, I was already uh, affiliated with a broker dealer. So I, I actually was ready to do this. Because unlike many people that, of course, you know, especially outside this country, sort of, I, I mean, the migration agents, we were already, the infrastructure was there, broker dealer licenses and everything else. But obviously, it's a different product, totally different market to get the clients and all that. And the rest is history. You know, we built this very powerful website. We have 25 different languages. Just about any person from any country that is interested in EB-5 could go into our website and be able to educate themselves in their own language without having to resort to uh, English. I mean, most of them, of course, speak English, but they feel more comfortable with technical issues, technical terminology. So that's why we built this website. Side. Tell me, what are some of the 25 languages? I mean, that's really incredible. Um, I mean, the ones that you wouldn't expect, like Bengali, yeah. Urdu, uh, Persian, Arabic. I mean, I can I can go through the language. We have Azeri. You know, uh, it starts with Turkish because, as I said, I mean, you know, that's sort of my home base. And right. there's, uh, Azeri, Russian, Spanish, Vietnamese, Korean, Portuguese, French, Japan. Tell me when Japanese. Tell me when to stop. No, it's incredible. Yeah. Really, good. I, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, we have everything. Indonesia. Asian. We have everything there. Even Chinese, we have the, you know, I know that uh, that's into your heart, your uh, language that uh, you're very familiar with. We have two types, the simplified and the, and the regular. So, so we, we, even, we even have that. I invite you to look at uh, our website and please comment, you know, what needs to be uh, updated there. Because uh, obviously uh, it was done by somebody who's very proficient in the language, but not an EB-5 guru like you. Right. Wow. Amazing. So really, you tackled this head on. You went right into the war room, as you describe it. And they put all their confidence and trust in you. And you really, you know, succeeded for them. And you created this very powerful website to reach out to 
all the potential EB5 investors around the world in 25 languages, I guess in, you know, 127 countries, if you will, right? And um, coming up, yes. <laughs> And here you are. It's got more now. There's uh, 190 or something countries. It was not okay. at one point, you're right. <laughs> And you've been able to to tap all these different investors from around the world. So I understand you sort of fell into it as we all kind of do, right? You know, divine providence brings us into where we are in our lives. But you must have seen a huge transition in EB-5 over the years, sort of coming to a screeching halt last year with the limbo that we've been in the last nine months. Tell me a little bit about what you've seen, where you've come and where we are today. I'll start with uh, the period uh, before 2019, November. You know, it was a very interesting period. It was a very interesting period for market practitioners as well as, you know, clients, you know, people who actually want to invest. I would say you would have maybe two or three times a year, sometimes maybe more, coinciding with the continual resolution, you know, sort of passing that we would have a scare that they would say, now targeted employment area, which basically means that areas where it's rural, high employment, projects that are there is going to go from minimum uh, investment uh, requirement from 500 to 1 million, and the other kind will go 1 million to 1.8. So obviously, everybody wanted to catch the 500. So every time we have a, a scare like this, we would do business because we people want to catch the the deadline only to find that the next day uh, you know nothing really happened you know the program got extended for another three months six months whatever it is very short periods with the same it's almost like it's almost like the government was doing marketing for you right uh, uh, also i thought you were going to say the crying wolf i mean oh. you know it, 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 it went into like a crying wolf so so some sometimes you know we would see that we would tell the client, you know, this is it, man. I mean, you know, and if you look at my website, uh, our website, you you will see a lot of blogs where we're saying, act now. I mean, you you this act now, act now. We, we've been saying that in 2017, 18, 19, you know, like all the time. And then only to find the next day that nothing really changed. Mm-hmm. Something happened in 2019. It was really different. Uh, I don't want to go politic uh, here, but in the Trump administration, there was this regulation that was into put into place, sort of to become the, the regulation by the previous president to Trump. So before that president left, he kind of put this in there, and then it just took a, you know some steps, like a, a few years. And by the time Trump woke up that there is such a thing there, it was already summer of 2019, July, actually. And I mean, obviously, I don't have a you know way to speak to him. But you know what I hear is that when he found out, he basically said, like, what the heck is this? And they said, well, it's in the federal registrar, Mr. President, and if you want to deny it, you will be the first or the second, I don't remember, president who has denied something that is already in the federal registrar. With all the other things that you're, you know, dealing with uh, and, and uh, you know, you have the press and everything, do you really want to tackle this or you just want to let it go? So it was horse trading. So, the, uh, so, so Trump said, let it go. And that's how we ended up in 2019, November, with the increased regulation with a 900, it went to 900 and it went to 1.8, like TA 900, 1.8. So that, that's what, where it happened. Now, how can I prove that to you? The way <laughs> I can prove that to you is because when he lost the election and the, the, the current president came into power, he annulled 
everything, everything except this. Mm. This did not get enough. And yet this was in the Trump administration. This stayed. So, so you go like, you know, this is horrible. Everybody hates it. Why is it here? How come this president is not taking this away? Nobody understands that. So, so now uh, a small digital center backed by big regional centers and big law firm did the job. They went and sued the government. And in, I believe, 22, 22 June 2021, this regulation was found unlawful. And the reason is because it was put into place before Trump. So it was already put into motion to, to go before Trump. So the Trump administration, the Homeland Security or whatever, they didn't really have the power. Not that they, they, they obviously they didn't even have the um, incentive, but they don't have the power to make it. So, so, so nobody really told them that you, you your signature is going to go into this because if they had told that, these people would have asked the president, and the president would say, just take this out. But since it, they knew that they're not going to accept it. They let it go, and they were hoping that it was becoming it was going to become a you know, regulation so quietly, and it did. But then, obviously, big firms. Um, I mean, I can it's public information. Greenberg Trawick, you know, big big regulation mm-hmm. firm. So mm-hmm. they they caught on to this. So they essentially sued the government, and uh, they won. So that is the good news. So we you know, you know that we went back to five hundred and back to the, the 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 old numbers where we were able to do business. But then uh, the lawmakers got in, uh, disenchanted, and they were hoping that they were going to pass a law alongside with the regulations. So when they saw that this was not going to happen, they pulled their their proposal, and June thirty, the program collapsed. The program collapsed as a regional center program, but not as a direct program. So then we had an era of nine months of craziness where the direct project started coming to the market as a make-believe, putting a square peg and a round hole uh, direct pooled project. So they, they, they looked like, the, the, legally they were direct projects, but they smelled sponsored by regional centers. And <laughs> it, it, it was, it was the, the whole thing was like basically a regional center kind of thing Except, of course, there were very small projects. In my opinion, again, this is very subjective, very risky. So I didn't put a single client. You know, I'm, I'm saying this publicly. I guess I, I put a single client to this to this. So I really describe this as a roller coaster. You know, nobody else, I think, has experienced this EB5 type of roller coaster um, in any other area of the government. I think, I mean, really, we've all been through, through such ups and downs. We're really all EB5 superheroes here for just <laughs> holding on tight, you know, throughout the, the ups and downs of this whirlwind tornado of EB5. But I think now we are seeing a, a light at the end of the tunnel. So what do you, what is your thought about the new EB5 reforms? And do you think that we have some wins? Do we have the opposite of wins? Where are we holding? And what do you think is the future for EB5, at least for the next five years? You're right. There's obviously positives and there's obviously not so not so positive. I want to talk about the positives first. Good. So the biggest positive is from I'm concerned, really, is the fact that past investors who have been calling me and expressing their frustrations that the U.S. is almost becoming the country they want to leave. <laughs> 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 and and I, I, I'm telling you this, like, God's honest truth. I got, like, they say the reason why we want to come to the United States is because we can't take the red tape. We can't take the politics or where we are. You can guess those countries. And we want to come to the U.S. because we want to have a 
you know, free life. We want a government who does what he says, means what, 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 what he says, and applies. So here, we followed the rules. We went through an incredibly rigorous source of funds, like like crazy source of funds, and and we're not hearing, we're not hearing a response, you know. So like an abeyance. So so the the biggest win, in my opinion, you know, again, that's my opinion, is the fact that now, thank God, the previous investors are going to be able to be processed, and they're not going to worry about, you know, uh, I mean, hopefully they'll they'll speed these thing, things up, and they'll get an answer, and soon they'll get their green card and their money back. So that's one thing. That is, I think, very, very good. I completely agree with you. I think the fact that you bring this up, you know, there were so many billions of dollars and families' lives that were being held in limbo and abeyance. And the amount of, I almost call it trauma, that uh, these families had to go through, not knowing what was going to happen, not having really any direction or any, as you said, feedback on what would be their fates, the futures of their of their families and their children's lives. I know that you probably had a great deal of managing expectations, to put it lightly, you know, constantly having to, you know, respond to these, you know, concerns and worries and anxiety of your investors. And I think you're, you are a EB5 superhero for helping them get through it and for you getting through it. So call it Kavod, as you say. Before we leave that, I mean, there yeah. were people who uh, were asking me advice, whether they should sue, you know, the mandamus, they should do a mandamus. And... I told them, you know, obviously to, to talk to their lawyer, you know, to their, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so that they should, they should get their legal advice. But my personal advice is not to do that because USCIS is not doing anything unlawful. They, their defense is very, you know, very, very clear. They, they say the program is stopped, has stopped. So, you know, we don't know whether we can. Re- so that, so, so I try to discourage them and turned out to be the right decision, I think. And others, some, some wanted to do both, wanted to call the regional center and say, pay us back. And that's also, you know, really short-sighted because you put so much money into this and effort and, you know, it's also the psychological aspect. I mean, you know, like you, this is, this is, a, as you said, I mean, this is not a, you know, this is not like buying a treasury bond. This is not buying IBM stock. This is like your whole life. I mean, this is not just an investment. It's a whole. So to 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 say goodbye, you know, I, I try to tell them, you know, just let's wait. You know, something something's going to happen, and thank God it did. So so that's that. Now for future, one of the most important positive that I see is that you will be able to do concurrent processing. So what concurrent processing means that when you apply for the 526, for the for the EB-5, uh, when you apply, you will also be able to apply what they call adjust, adjustment of status simultaneously. That, of course, applies only for people who are here. But then, you know, there are m- many, many of the clients, many of the people who are interested in EB-5 are F1s, you know, they are students, uh, H1Bs, like Indian community, huge. And then there's E2s, so there, there's a huge portion of the EB-5 clientele is already in the United States. And so for them, this would be an amazing win because as soon as they get their 526 approved, then they'll be able to continue and do a travel document, work permit. The work permit is good because uh, they can get a, another job. Like with H-1B, they're locked into this. One right. My understanding is that it not only applies to new applicants, but for all of the EB-5 applicants who are currently here in the country. Who are I know here. pretty yeah. wide years ago, now yeah. they can immediately 
uh, go ahead and, and, and file this. 100% right. That's, that's exactly right. So, so that's, that I think probably, I mean, you know, uh, one of the biggest, uh, biggest wins. The other one, of course, I mean, you know, how can I forget the fact that we're not going to have these three months, six months extensions. It's the first time a long-term five-year breather. One thing I didn't understand, and maybe you have, can shed some light to this, uh, you know, one thing I did not understand is why the first four years, the people who apply in the first four years are going to be grandfathered, but the last year is not going to be grandfathered. That's what I understood. Because it says it's, it's extended to 2027. If you applied until 2026, you're grandfathered. So what are we going to do in that last one year? Are, are we going to tell them, you're like the people from before. That's sort of like, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the purpose of it is. Now, the stuff that I am not so crazy about is obviously the, the amount. You know, we went from 500 to 800. That's disappointing. 700, in my opinion, was a push. We weren't really sure that we're going to be able to generate enough business to actually use all the visas that are allocated, you know, the 10,000 visas, as they, as, they, as they say, with the 700. But, you know, we were 800. Almost everybody believes that is going to be very difficult. Now, why do I say that? Because a lot of people listening to this will probably say, come on, Marco, whomever can give 500 can give 800. There is some truth to that. If there was no source of funds issue. 800,000 or the 500,000, each investor have, or in most cases, they need to be accredited investors without, with at least a million dollars or two or three hundred thousand dollars annual income. So to ask somebody to have eight hundred thousand dollars of, of assets is something which is, I guess, within reason for an accredited investor. The people uh, who can pay 500 as an investment can, should be able to pay 800. This is sort of the, the, the wisdom. And I disagree. So, and, I, and I'm going to tell you why I disagree. A person could have two, three, five million. Let, let me tell you my sort of Marco uh, definition of the eligible, the type of investor that goes for EB5, regional center. Typically, their wealth is between three to $10 million. And I'll tell you why. Because if it's less than three, they're too poor. I mean, they, they, they don't have enough money to lock up even half a million dollars. So almost none of my investors are in a wealth, net worth, you know, wealth that, that is less than that. If they are more than 10 million, they're too rich. So what they could do is they can come here with other different me- methods. They probably have a big company in, uh, you know, their whole country. They can come here with an L1. Possibilities for the ultra rich is much higher than this EB-5. So the soft spot for an EB-5 investor, in my opinion, in my experience, has been the 3 million to 10 million dollar range net worth kind of guy. Problem is that not all this money that was legitimately earned can be sourced, can stand to the scrutiny that we're subjecting these investors. The law says, said, I don't know the new one, I don't read the whole thing, but the, the, the way the law said before, more likely than not, this money is clean. More likely than not. It doesn't mean that 100% is clean. More likely than not. So which means is if the guy is a, you know, high level executive in Microsoft, in McKinsey or whatever, you know, high level and he's been making, uh, you know, 200, $300,000, $500,000 a year. Um, I mean, he can show you that his income is great. So we will sort of um, imply that the money that he's bringing is clean money. But the way we implement it, we look at where the money is coming from, which bank, and we ask the investor, how did the money come here? What did you do? So we need to find out who paid this money to this bank. And if it was for some sale of some uh, real estate or whatever, 
we're going to ask him, how did you buy that real estate? With what money did you buy that real estate? So we're going to go to the source and God forbid in the same account, if he had some uh, uh, mixing of uh, uh, monies, you know, monies going out in, in, in and out. So what I'm saying is what I'm trying to get to is that each $100,000, let alone $300,000 to document it is, um, I think, very difficult. So this is my personal opinion that the $800,000 is going to be a, a problem, just like 900000 was. I mean, I'll tell you, there were more than the allotted, let's say, 2500 to 3000 in, uh, investors for the 10000 visas before the new regulation, the old new, you know, the 900000 uh, regulation. And then we saw annual uh, applications drop down to 100, 200, 300 in a whole year from thousands. So now we're back to that, to 800. So I think this is too high, but time will tell. I hope and I pray that I will be proven wrong. I think you listed three good things. Grandfathering was one. Two was the long-term reauthorization, five years, right? For the for the 526 and the 485s at the same time. So the other news, I guess, and the, the downside or the the, the the not as positive you mentioned so far were, was the, the price. Anything else that you think are going to be cha- create challenges for the um, for the program? I think the challenges will probably be that there is an allocation to you know rural projects. I think it's like 20 percent of the visas. Basically, there's an allocation that is going to eat from the all available projects. I'm not sure. Maybe that's a that's a wash for I guess uh, there must be people who want to uh, invest in those kind of projects. Uh, obviously, the big uh, I wouldn't say negative, but uh, you know the 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 the, the biggest problem is that uh, it's not going to be possible to, uh, you know, unless you pay the million, million f- uh, 50 to do non-TA project, you know, New York, Miami, Los Angeles, Chicago, kind of very uh, uh, upscale type of projects is, is going to be difficult. Back to the issue about the sourcing 800,000 versus 500,000. Now also the admin fees need to be sourced. Not only that, I mean, any anything. Uh, uh, admin fee, we always sourced it anyways, even be, even before we, we did. You know, it, uh, it was gray. Now it's no longer gray. Now it's like 100%. Even though because it was gray, we always sourced it. I have a feeling that other things will have to be sourced now as well. I'm not sure what they are. Could be legal fees, could be filing fees. I mean, there are other fees and uh, it's not clear to me uh, whether, I mean, those are rounding errors. I mean, those are really, when you look at the big picture, they're, they're, Pretty, pretty small. Beyond uh, EB5, you have built a business in E2s or second country citizenship. So tell us a little bit about that. How does E2 compare with EB5? And what does E2 plus EB5 look like now with the new reforms? Yes, E2, some people uh, look at it as a, you know, alternative. Some people look at it as a complementary. Uh, and, and, and both are right, you know. So the people who want to look at E2 as a alternative are looking at it too because they just cannot stand against the you know source of funds that we talked about. And E2 source of funds is much easier. You know, nothing as, as scrutinized as uh, EB5. Some people have a problem with the tax, the global tax. You know, the fact that with EB5, with a green card, they are subject to uh, their foreign income being taxed in addition to the U.S. tax. Residency requirements, some people just cannot, you know, with E2, you can be here all the time 
you can be here part of the time, we can be here none of the time. You know, there's no, there's full flexibility to EB-5. Once you have a green card, you're expected to, you know, basically immigrate. So that could be, you know, sometimes uh, a reason why. And then the processing times, you know, in EB-5, obviously it's much longer, even in the new world, it's going to be longer than E-2. E-2 is pretty fast. Typically, you're getting an E-2 within six months. And the reason why it sort of is an extension of our business is because we also, in addition to just regularly to the, the, for countries uh, that have the treaty with the United States, we also cater countries, uh, I'll, I'll name them, like Brazil, Russia, South Africa, Nigeria, Vietnam, uh, India, all the Gulf, um, China. So none of these countries where there's huge push, push factor and pull factor in the United States, they don't have the E2 treaty. So to them, we promote a second country citizenship. The top two, in my opinion, are Turkey and Granada. There is Montenegro also, but the program is not as good. The only people that Montenegro would make sense are the undecided, you know, the people who say, I want to not only U.S. access, but I also want the EU access. But the person has already decided that their destination is United States and they they want the E2, then really Turkey and Grenada. So that, that those are the passports that we uh, work on as well. What you're really providing is for them to get a, a passport or residency in one of these E2 countries. We call them an E2 countries. And then they can come to the States and do the E2 visa. Is that what you're describing? And right, how right. exactly? It's a, it's a Turkey. And sort of a, walk me through that process. Or some of our listeners may want to know what they can do. It's a turnkey uh, solution that we provide. For example, in Turkey, we actually have an office. We have exactly the same thing as like here. We have uh, signed uh, agreements with regional centers who have agreements with developers. In Turkey, we have direct agreements with the developers. What the investor will do, the one who's seeking for the uh, Turkish citizenship, they will hire us and we will give them options of real estate. Unlike EB-5 here, you're actually buying finished product. You're buying a condo, you're buying some, you know, any kind of real estate really. And it can give you immediate income. The process will take less than six months because once you prove that you actually bought the real estate and the necessary papers, then we apply to the government to get the citizenship. Once you get the citizenship, of course, you get the passport. With that, now you're eligible to start an E2 business in the United States. For that, we provide, of course, also a turnkey A to Z service. Those who want to purchase a franchise, we suggest franchises to them in the area of, of their interest. Those who want to form their own company, we help them in forming the company, get in tax ID, put them in touch. I mean, we do the business plan for them. We do the, the whole the whole E2 process for them as well. Wow, that's amazing. Do you think that there are real opportunities now going from E2 to EB-5 more than before? Or you think that the E2s might just hold on to their uh, E2 status and not necessarily swap over to EB-5 now that the investment price has increased and, and the other hoops that they have to jump through in order to do EB-5? There are, as we said, you know, this the people who have the money, the people who uh, really want to get here as soon as possible, you know, with the world the way it is now, you know, that, that's obviously becoming more and more the case. They can choose to do the E2. Even, I mean, I've had cases where they will apply for the E2 and then they start the EB-5 process even before the E2 is even approved. You can't do that the other way around because, you know, once you express immigrant intent, it's very difficult to do a non-immigrant visa. But once you do the non-immigrant application, 
you can just move forward with the, with the immigrant. You know, you want to really get a green card. You want to really get your life here to become America. So if their funds are there, why not? Marco, you're really a, a pillar in this EB-5 space. Tell us about your team of EB-5 superheroes and how you keep this network of languages and, and countries and citizenships going. So my team uh, is all around the world. As I said, I invite your listeners to go to our website, www.america, like the country, eb5visa.com. And if they click in who are we, they'll see that, you know, we have presence in Latin America, we have presence in Europe, Africa, we have presence in Middle East, of course, and uh, Asia, everywhere. So those are my team. Those are the people. I mean, so public, you know, they can see, you know, the people that are in our team. That's internal. But external, obviously, uh, we uh, work with solution partners. And I want to put on the top of the list those solution partners to be the immigration attorney. You know, we have, uh, through the years, developed a very uh, solid, trusting relationship with immigration attorneys. When we get inquiries, you know, we refer, of course, to the immigration attorneys that we work with. And uh, there is a professional, you know, courtesy that goes back and forth. Right. You brought up an interesting topic. Part of the reforms were these broker-dealer registrations that have to occur now. You are a registered broker dealer here in the U.S., but there are people now who are outside the U.S. who may be part of your team or um, associates that now have to go through some type of oversight. Have you thought that through and, and how is that going to work? Have, has anybody told you what that's going to be like? No, I think it's going to affect us very minimally. I want to say almost it won't affect us because in our team here in the U.S., we have people who are registered in addition to me and any kind of legal document that will be sent to the client will be done by one of those people in the U.S. So we will never rely on a person overseas who's essentially introducing us a client, essentially, to, uh, uh, you know, take the client from A to Z. It's, it's, it's all processed right here because the investments are here. The purpose of the people uh, overseas is identifying the client and any Zoom, any, any, any conversation of any, any substance that occurs, it will happen you know, with, with a person who's licensed here in the U.S. So that's for us. What we will need to do with USCIS, it's not clear. Whatever it is, we will do, of course, but there has been absolutely Absolutely no guidance on that. I want to think that if you are a FINRA EB-5 approved broker dealer, which we are, I think USCIS will say, just stay like that. <laughs> just let's, let's make sure that, you know, you don't lose that status. You're exactly what the USCIS would, would like to see is a registered right, broker. Right. Right. Now, yeah. our competition, you know, namely in China, Vietnam, Korea, what they will have to do, I have no idea. I mean, I can say that they will have to be, in my opinion, more educated in the product they're selling. They will once and for all have to read the PPM for a change as opposed to just this project uh, pays me this much, this project pays me that much. I mean, they were going to be expected to be able to explain to, I guess, whichever authority or CIS as to why they are recommending their clients a specific project. I think it's, it affects them. And, and I, I, I want to believe it's really geared towards them rather than you know, registered broker dealers in this country. I think I think you made a very good point. That's really where there hasn't been any oversight in t until today. And these are probably the places where there may have been a lack of transparency or not enough information for the investors. And I, I think it really 
is a very important integrity measure that the, the new regulations have have implemented. So I think that's great. Listen, Marco, it was great speaking with you. You're a pillar, you're uh, a mensch, and you're really somebody that we all look up to in this industry. And I know you're going to do great things as we navigate this roller coaster. Hopefully it's an up part of the roller coaster for all of us now going forward. And I believe we're going to have a bright future for, for EB5 and for all those who are reaching to achieve the American dream. So thank you, Marco, for all the great EB5 superhero things that you do for EB5. Thank you for having me in your program. Thank you. That's a wrap. Marco Isover and other EB5 superheroes like him are the industry's best and brightest who are flying onward and upward to bring out the best in EB5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB5 superhero. Thank you for listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB5 and the American dream. To access today's show notes, ask Matt a question, or suggest an EB5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit eb5superheroes.com.